and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 135, The Death of Innocence. Last time, we saw that Nazi Germany was losing the war, despite the best efforts of Alfred Krupp to arm his country with enough weapons. And again, the foreign slave laborers were not supposed to survive their time in the work camps. Still, other camps, like IG Farben, fed their workers a full meal, not the water and onions, but mostly water, that was given out to the Canning King's inmates. And of course, the Jews received even less food, but more beatings than everyone else, per the Nazi, but really Alfred's program. However, as the war progressed, the Russian prisoners came to be treated much like the Jews. This was probably Alfred's way of getting revenge on the countrymen who were offering the greatest resistance to the Third Reich. And to be sure, the orders concerning food and overall treatment was coming from Alfred directly. His foremen were protesting the prisoners' diet, but it changed nothing. If anything, these locals risked their careers by speaking out. And it would be Krupp's own people, the older of the Krupp-Nier, who would defy their master. With the war nearly over, the people of Essen looked upon these ghosts and started giving of their own food, regardless of the possible punishment. Of course, this tiny measure could do nothing to stave off the thousands of deaths each month that occurred in the Krupp camps. During the last year of the war, the percentage of sick workers actually decreased. It eventually came down to be on par with the German workers. But it took a blunt American judge to point out how this happened. As one of Krupp's camp doctors was being questioned by the judge, the American drilled down until he got his answer. The judge said, you said the Russians had a rate of sickness of 35%. It was answered, yes. The judge, this percentage was then reduced to 6%. Is that correct? Answer, yes. I remember this figure very decidedly. Question, of what date? How many cases of death did you have? Answer, I'm afraid I can't give you any figures for that because of extreme weakness and exhaustion. Many of them died. Judge, is it therefore correct to assume that part of this reduction of illness in the case of the Russian prisoners of war might also be caused by death? Answer, yes, of course. And as those deaths were natural, they were not shot, the Krupp reports raised no alarms and no change to the policy was forthcoming. The brutality, the killings, the starvation was all based on corrupt policy, and only one man had the power to make or alter such policy, Alfred Krupp. After the Battle of Stalingrad, it ended in February of 43, the Germans in general and the guards of the slave camps became more paranoid. Thus, they strove to work their charges harder but did not feed them any more than before, as that was against company policy. This urged more sympathy from the Krumpenier themselves, but again, this was only a drop in an ocean of bestiality. 
It must never be forgotten that although the Krupp guards were adhering to the line set by Alfred, he was towing the line set by Berlin. And it wasn't enough for the masters of Nazism to simply conquer, to show the rest of the world that the Germans were superior. No, the will of the peoples of the conquered must be broken, for that is how you keep a people down. On the same day, the Japanese military launched its sneak attack on the Americans at Pearl Harbor, Hitler himself issued the Night and Fog Decree. This order said that those persons who had broken the law, which meant they endangered German security, were to be brought to Germany to serve in one of the various work camps. But the truly horrendous part of Night and Fog and this was done deliberately, was to make sure the relatives of those criminals did not know what happened to them or where they had been taken. Thus the lesson would be driven home that those who resisted Europe's new masters would simply disappear. And as much as those left behind could use their imagination to conjure up such torments, they rarely matched what actually happened to their relatives, for many of them would end up in one of Crump's work camps, and their treatment would be no different than those already covered. Many of these night and fog people disappeared after the war, never to be seen by their friends or family again. As for the German records, normally an exact science, this too was of little help. Books upon books simply had their name and the letters N-N next to it, for Nacht und Nebel, German for Night and Fog. They never returned home, and their bodies were never identified. Their prisoner number, tattooed on their left forearm, was of little help. Another legacy of Hitlerism. By early 1944, the Third Reich was dying. Everyone knew it, though few Germans admitted it, at least to other Germans. Berlin certainly did not, nor did Essen. And one of the signs of its demise was that more German men were being drafted into the armed forces. As for its women, the idea of your true life's work is at home had to be pushed aside. Still, the gap created by the missing men was not filled. Thus, it would have to be forced foreign labor. And Alfred would find that his policy of working the foreigners to death was now the SS's number one goal. They were simply making too much money to do anything else. So Jewish females, and eventually Jewish children, were to be brought to the various camps. If they were physically able, then some project would be assigned to them. If they weren't, then they were destined for the furnace, after being gassed or shot. By mid-May of 1943, Alfred was ordering more of these, the furnaces, for his camps. Either one worked, or they were rid of. There was no middle ground. Krupp also put in orders for equipment to move the bodies, now starved to death or otherwise, to load them into the furnaces, as well as devices to deal with the mounds of ashes. 
However, the point is, though Nazi policy was to rid the world of these people, their death rate, in a minute way, was slowed down, due to some being kept alive to work. This would not alter the Holocaust by much, but some of those workers would be alive when the various Allied soldiers came to their respective camps. By mid-1944, tens of thousands of Jewish Eastern females began to arrive at Krupp camps. But again, only about 25% of them were even given a chance to work. The rest were gassed and burned. It's not necessary to repeat the brutality under which these young women lived under, but it should be remembered that their treatment stirred something in the nearby Krumpenir. Some locals shared their food, offered encouraging words. They had nothing else to share. But the greatest asset they passed along were radio reports of Allied military victories that seemed to be getting closer. The local men and women who all but belonged to Alfred Krupp must have known that they would not be judged when the war ended. But as it had been such a long time since the Wehrmacht had dominated the field, along with the almost nightly bombings, they must have wanted the war to end. If not for their sake, then at least so that the cruelty displayed daily before them would come to an end. The young female slaves got on as best they could with loading rubble onto the backs of trucks after bombings, moving iron girders whose cold steel would remove the skin from their hands at the first touch, moving a wheelbarrow full of stones again the conveyor was made of metal, which ripped off the skin of its user. But they were still expected to clean up at the end of each day. By February of 1945, the surviving women of the Humboldt work camp, just outside Essen, were getting the worst of the winter that had properly arrived. It didn't help that they had a nine-mile walk from Humboldt to their factory, Wallswork too. Each day at 4.30 a.m., they would rise and begin their trek, right through the heart of Alfred's workshops. With the onset of winter, the workers' productivity, never that great, dropped further. A Krupp executive was made aware of this camp's meager output. Something had to be done. The food going to these women was being wasted, if that's all the work they were going to do. After asking around, the executive decided they had to be sent out by rail to the Gellisberg camp, a sub-camp of the concentration camp Buchenwald. There, they would be executed. By this time, everyone in Essen knew that it was only a matter of time before the Americans arrived, and it was universally wished that these women should not end up in the hands of the enemy. Besides, the sight of them trudging each morning and each afternoon right under Alfred's very window disagreeably affected the cannon king by his own admission at Nuremberg. To be sure, the elite of Krupp of Essen were going to be put on trial. However, it was thought that if the Americans came upon these women in their current state, heads shaved, 
swollen limbs, burlap for clothes, and some had wooden clogs. The Americans might take it into their heads to administer some Old Testament justice with their guns right there on the spot. No need to tempt fate. So the women were made ready to leave. Of course, this plan of action had to be run by the SS. But the local officials agreed, again, not wanting the Americans to see their handiwork. Yet the problem was, the SS, who had few restrictions placed upon them, could not put together the transportation. So much around them had been wrecked by Allied bombs. The best that could be done was a train with 50 coaches. It would have to make for another train 10 miles away, as the first train's tracks were wrecked beyond that point. From there, the men in charge of the passengers would have to make do. Still, the name of Krupp worked miracles, and the rail lines ahead of them started to be cleared. But by now, it was mid-March of 1945, the word had spread of the fate of these doomed ladies. Soon, a local crumpineer had told the women of their destination and fate. One of the inmates, Elizabeth Roth of Hungary, had decided she had nothing to lose at this point. So when she examined the fencing around the camp, she found that the latest British bombing had loosened the fence in one section. This would be their way out. Better yet, if the British came back, the Germans would die for their shelters, leaving the prisoners to their own devices. That would be the perfect time, though dangerous, to leave. The British airmen complied. The Germans hid. And the Roth sisters and a small group of women made their way through the fence. Buchenwald would have that many fewer to make disappear from this world. But in a story such as this, one good turn deserves not another, but something bad, something dark, something hideous, and on a scale to rip the heart out of those women who had just escaped. Indeed, something that would gladly make them change places with Krupp's next victims. There was another concentration camp. Its name was Buschmannshof, sometimes called Vorde West, located 26 miles from Essen. Less than 12 people knew of its existence, but here not one inmate would survive its closing. Buschmannshof looked very much like Auschwitz, seven long, dirty barracks with tiny windows. There was no barbed wire here. None was needed. Most, if not all, of those trapped inside couldn't walk. When the eastern workers first came to Essen, the policy was to let relatives stay together, provided they work hard. Not unexpectedly, nature took its course. Within nine months of these groups first arriving, some of the female workers were pregnant. This unthought-out consequence would force a change in policy, but not right away. Regardless, De Firma soon had infants on their hands. The mothers were allowed to stay in hospital for six weeks. Then it was back to work. As for the children, they would stay at the hospital the mother being allowed to see them once a week, if she made the journey, 
on her own time. However, this did not work out as the war turned worse for Germany and the need greater for weapons production. It wasn't long before the Krupp officials realized they had too many and more were coming. Useless mouths, that is. So Bushmanshof was chosen as a site to house these infants born on German soil. It will come as no surprise that few records were kept on these children, who would want to record such things. But there were enough details to show that the toddlers came to the camp already starving and sick from a lack of nutrients. Their diet did not improve once they reached Bushmanshof. If anything, it got worse. Unlike the work camps, the children were not neglected purposefully. It's just that they were very low on a very long list of other priorities. By late 1942, the rate at which infants were sent to Bushmanshof had grown significantly, as did the number of daily deaths. One of the few female guards of the camp testified, 50 or 60 children died every day, and as many were born every day, because there was a constant flux of eastern female workers with children, which was true and not true. Only children less than two years old were allowed to stay at Bushmanshof. This went on through 1942, 1943, and 1944. In February of 1945, the camp received a new master, one Lorenz Scheider. He had been in charge of another camp of Krupps and was known for his cruelty. Just before his arrival, the death rate of children was about 74%, but with Scheider on the job, that rose to 90%, based on the scant records that survived the war. No one can say for sure how the children died. There were no bullet wounds, no gas used, but they were dead just the same. By March of 1945, the Americans were charging into the Ruhr in their tanks. Something had to be done with the Kinder. Thus, Scheider was ordered, no one knows by whom, to move the 10% surviving to Thuringia, about 200 miles east of the Ruhr. That was as far as the children could be sent, and yet still be behind the main lines of battle. But that was the last that was ever heard of these innocents. Greetings, everyone. So um, I'm going to keep the Crump story going because now you have an idea of of what was going on in Essen and the type of man that Alfred Krupp is. However, some incredible things are going to happen to him and to Germany right after the war. So um, not every bad guy gets his just desserts, uh, as we're going to see, because it's going to be a very complex time. So I will be staying with the Alfred storyline. However, there will be some scattered in the next couple of episodes, either standalone or one or two part stories, ju- just to uh, give you something different, because uh, this gets pretty dark to read about. It must be very dark to listen to. So uh, so even though you'll hear another story every once in a while, uh, the Krupp dynasty is not going anywhere. I just wanted to make you aware, and I am 
and working very hard to get caught up, but at the same time trying to do another Pearl Harbor episode, and at the same time trying to read through the next book for the next interview. Um, For those of you who follow me on Facebook, I'm sure you saw the big stack of books that I have of people who want to be interviewed. So just getting to it as, as fast as I can. Again, thank you for your patience, and as always, take care, everyone.